In this series so far, we've emphasized the fact that not only that God loves us, that he communicates that love to us through creation, through his word, and of course in his word, the greatest revelation of his love and his will was Jesus Christ himself. And of course, that's what the world is thinking about this time of year, is the gift of God to us in his son, Jesus Christ, and how he communicates that love to us. But we haven't particularly mentioned is that God expects the same level of communication in return. Not only does he love us and communicate with us, he wants us to talk back. And that's what we're discussing this morning in our message, The Privilege of Prayer. But before we get started, of course, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again that we can be here together now. And at this particular time when we open your word to study this important concept of prayer, Lord, we would ask that you would, as the disciples ask of you, to teach us to pray that we may have a genuine, open, and always growing relationship with our Savior. For we pray it in his precious name. Amen. There's a common misconception, at least in my ruminating about it, in my thinking about this issue, that prayer, because it is so personal, so intimate between you and the Lord, that it can't particularly be taught. And if it were to be taught, it would be too formulaic, it would be too structured, and it would take away the spirit of prayer. And so we don't often get into the nuts and bolts of how to pray, but we do talk about how not to pray and what to watch out for. Okay? It, you'll, be, you'll be encouraged to pray, and you'll hear platitude, platitudes like, pray hard, pray always, pray, pray, pray. And when you're done, pray some more. Sounds good, but... Instructing someone to pray without instructing them about the process of prayer doesn't actually particularly help. This isn't aided in the Christian environment we live in today, especially even in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Prayer has become a rather, believe it or not, hot-button issue. It's rather controversial. You'll hear warnings against practices like contemplative prayer or meditative prayer, uh, uh, breath prayer, centering prayer. Uh, warnings against mysticism, and these are all rightly to be warned against. We should watch out that we have a genuine relationship with the true God in the way that he has asked in his word. But a danger that concerns me, even in these well-intended and necessary warnings, is that we accidentally end up denouncing the counterfeit, as we should, without fully developing what the genuine actually is in the first place. So we know that we should pray, and we should pray hard, and we should pray often, and don't pray in those ways, what, what should I do when it comes to my prayer time with the Lord? Let's take a look at this today. Luke chapter 11. First of all, and it might seem like a very small point, but I, I think it's very important to start with that prayer can be taught. Prayer can be taught. It's not just a personal whatever you feel like doing, whatever. It can be taught. Luke chapter 11, in verse 1. Jesus was having his personal prayer time. And again, when we're talking about prayer here, I'm talking about in your personal, devotional steps to Christ. I'm not talking about public oration. I'm not talking about from the platform. I'm talking about you and the Lord, your communication to each other. Okay, Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, that is Jesus, of course, when he ceased or when he stopped, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Let's break down this request. Is this implying that these disciples did not pray? No. 
I believe that the disciples prayed. They probably grew up in homes where prayer was a part of it. They went to church where prayer was a part of it. They had prayer as a part of their life. But something about the qualitative nature, the way that Christ prayed, the sincerity, something about his personal prayer life was so significant to them. They said, Lord, whatever it is you're doing, teach us to do that too. Teach us to pray. And again, I don't think that that's saying pray for the very first time, but Lord, it's almost as though we haven't been praying right all along. Teach us to pray. And apparently, notice the implication that John also taught his disciples. Prayer is something that can be taught. And they saw in Jesus' life something they wanted to learn. Lord, teach us to pray like that. So to their credit, when they didn't understand something, they asked for help. Now, this is not the only time that Christ would give instruction on prayer. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, he addresses the concept of prayer as well. Matthew chapter 5. I'm sorry, chapter 6, sorry, I apologize for that, starting with verse 5. Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 5. Jesus addresses this concept of prayer. And he begins with what not to do before he offers the model prayer of what to do. And he says, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray. Now, is that bad that they love to pray? (laughs) No. They have a love for prayer, but what about the prayer was so significant to them? They love to pray how? Standing. Is it wrong to stand? No. But where were they standing? In the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. That they may be seen by men. Clearly, Christ is teaching prayer is to be heard by God, not to be seen by men. But their prayer life had become a public production. It had become showy. And he says, the first thing you want to do when you pray is not do that. Don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand, pray standing in the synagogues on the street corners that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. All they're going to get out of that prayer is the prayer itself. They've already got it. But, now he goes, what to do, verse 6. But you, when you pray... Go into your what? Your room. And when you have what done, done what next? Shut the door. Pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Like your reward, the results of your prayer will be open in the rest of your life. But when you actually have that prayer communication with the Lord, it's private, it's personal. You go to your room, you shut your door, and you pray to your Father in the secret place. Notice this emphasis on personal, private, secret. You should have a prayer life that's not just at mealtimes or in public things or whatever the thing, but you have an actual dialogue with your Heavenly Father, personally, individually, distinct from all others. Pray with your door shut in your room. And he goes on in verse 7, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions. Vain, of course, means not just arrogant, as we come to think, but vain means hollow and empty, pointless, right? Vain, and what does repetition mean? Over and over and over and over and over. I could give you an example. I could just keep going. But saying the same thing over, and then saying the same thing again, and saying the same thing again, and saying things, why would people do that? Well, according to Christ, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. Pause right there. Did it ever dawn on your mind that heathens pray? 
Apparently. Do you remember the, the, the showdown on Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal and the prophet Elijah? Did they set up an altar? Sure. Did they pray to Baal? Yes. But notice how they prayed? A long time, right? Morning, noon, and night, over and over. And then they started yelling, and they started screaming and dancing and chanting. In fact, it got so bad that they started cutting themselves, the Bible says. All in an effort to hear us, O Baal, hear us. And you know, they thought if they could say it loud enough, say it over and over enough, make it intense enough, make it crazy enough, then their God would listen. But Christ says, don't do that. Don't pray in vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. The thing that recommends you to God is the way that you pray or the frequency of your prayer or the intensity of your prayer. If I just do it the right way and say the right things, in fact, if I just get those phrases and say them over and over and over, God will hear me because God loves a good repetition. Now, I know that we kind of chuckle at that, as we probably should, but do you realize how many people in the world think those thoughts even today? Even inside the Christian world, most religions of the world, Christian included, appeal to God in that manner. If I pray the right way, if I say just the right words, if I've committed a sin, I say the same thing. I'll go to someone and they'll tell me, say this phrase over and over, say it a hundred times and you'll be good. Yeah, just preach it a little louder, say it a little louder, say it more intense, or... But Christ said, before I teach you how to pray, let me teach you what not to do. Most people are getting these things wrong. So don't be like that. I think of our, uh, our dear friends who, who pray the rosary over and over and over and over. Completely sincere. But it violates the spirit of prayer that Christ was trying to implore his people to have. Make it real, make it genuine, not just a form over and over and over. I think of the religions of the world who specify you have to pray this many times in this position, praying this direction, using these words at these set times. As if the time, the place, the repetition would recommend you to God. Even Bible-believing Protestant Christians face this temptation. I've heard praying that sounds nothing like nothing more than people who think that they'll be heard for their many words. And again, it's not, from ins- it's not from a lack of sincerity. It's just, I don't believe there's many of us who've been taught how to pray. We've been told to pray, commanded to pray even, but never taught actually how to do it. So let's move into what prayer is. According to God's word, You know, both in Matthew chapter 6 and in Luke chapter 11, when his disciples asked them privately, the Lord gave an example of prayer. Now, the great irony, I think, is we come to call this the Lord's Prayer, which, in fact, he was giving it to us for it to be our template for prayer. The other irony I see is that right after Christ says, don't pray in vain repetitions, but pray like this, what we've done is we've taken that prayer and turned it into a vain repetition. We say those exact words over and over. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying the Lord's Prayer. Don't get me wrong. But is the Lord intending here to say, these are the words that you say when you approach me? No. Look what his language is. Um, Notice again here in verse 8. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. 
By the way, what is the implication there? Should prayer just be an itemization of our needs? Lord, here's what I need. I mean, thank you for creating me, blah, blah, blah. And here's what I need. No. Does God already know what you need? Of course. Now, does that mean we shouldn't tell him? Of course. No, but the purpose of prayer is not just to communicate to God, here's what I need and want. Apparently, God already knows. But then he says in verse 9, in this manner, therefore, pray. Something like this. Here's a template, a model prayer. And notice how he outlines it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you've heard this broken down several times, but notice it's our Father and not sovereign master of my fate. Father. But it's not dude either. He's still on a throne in heaven, right? With a holy name. So it should be comfortable and confident, but not arrogant and flippant. Your kingdom come, your will be done. How many times are our prayers filled with, Lord, here's what I would like done. But apparently the purpose of prayer is to have a relationship with our Father and then become more and more like Him by knowing what is your will, how I can do it. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We're going to come back to some of these issues, but very practical, very personal, very here's what I need right now. Here's what's going on in my life today. Here are my needs. Forgive us our debts. Lord, I want forgiveness, but notice he ties to this beautifully, as we forgive our debtors. So, Lord, I want forgiveness from you to the same proportion that I give forgiveness to others. (laughs) Right? And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. How many times do we stop and ask for forgiveness, but don't really ask for victory the next time the temptation comes around? We kind of like the forgiveness aspect. The Lord, after you've forgiven my sins, can you keep me out of that? Can you help me? Can you give me strength? Can you give me victory over next time it comes up? Deliver us from the evil one. To yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I would defy you, and I know it's a pretty challenging word, but I'll stick with it. I would defy anyone to find a more practical treatment on the subject of prayer than the 11th chapter of Steps to Christ, this chapter, The Privilege of Prayer. Right near the beginning of this chapter, we find the following simple yet radically significant explanation. Prayer is, and here you go, one of my favorite sentences in the Spirit of Prophecy. Prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a what? Friend. Opening of your heart to God just like he were your friend. Because he is. Not that it is necessary in order to make known to God what we are, but in order to enable us to receive him. Prayer does not bring God down to us, but brings us up to him. On the same page we read, Our minds may be drawn out toward him. We may meditate upon his works, his mercies, and his blessings, but this is not, in the fullest sense, communing with God. Thinking about God is not the same thing as talking with God, right? And I love thinking about God, sewing together these great themes of Scripture and studying his word and looking at his creative power. All of those things are good and wonderful and should be done, but that's not the same thing as prayer. Reflecting on how good God is is not the same thing as just opening your mouth and talking to him. It's not in the fullest sense of the word, communing 
with him. In order to commune with God, think of the power of this. I, had, I sit and thought about this for a little bit. In order to commune with God, we must have something to say to him concerning our actual life. If you're going to talk to God, a real conversation, like, take, let's, let's say that it weren't a relationship with God, but it was a relationship with, say, your spouse. If every time you saw your spouse, you said the same rote phrases over and over and over, you might talk to them, but you wouldn't be building a real relationship. They wouldn't know how the meeting went. They wouldn't know what your hopes and dreams were. They, wouldn't know. they would just hear you over and over and over. A formulaic ceremony around of empty words, vain repetitions. But this is not what we're talking about. She's talking about saying, we must have something to say to him concerning our actual life. When I go home, by the way, I don't have that many friends. It's, I'm not saying that like, woe is me, I'm choosing this. <laughs> I think I, I think I could have friends, maybe, but I really got one really, really best friend, and it's my wife, and I love her to pieces, right? And when I talk to her, I talk to her about silly things and ideas that I'd like to see happen and disappointments and discouragements and hopes and dreams and, oh, those people at Mesquite. No, no. <laughs> You're like, no, 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 slow down. No, no, no. <laughs> But I talk to her about real, actual things that happened that day. Now, if I go and speak to the Lord, should I not have as much of a close relationship with the Lord as I have with my earthly best friend, my wife? Should you talk about those frustrations and those confusions and those perplexities and those disappointments or those hopes or those dreams or these ideas that you have and just talk? Absolutely. Absolutely. But sometimes we notice we have a good, close, personal friend talk, and then we have prayer talk. And God's like, why don't you treat me at least as good as you treat them? Just talk. In order to commune with God, we must have something to say to him concerning our actual life. So you put these concepts together in one beautiful sentence. Can't think of a better definition. Prayer is, quote, Talking to God as to a friend concerning our actual life. I know it's not deep, it's not philosophical, it's not big theological terms. It's talking to God like he's your friend because he is. Use real words. You don't have to necessarily, unless you're comfortable, I'm not making fun, but you don't have to shift into King James when you speak to the Lord. If that's your comfortable rapport, I'm not saying that's wrong, but listen to me. Speak to him in language at least you can understand. He can understand any language you bring to him, right? But how would you speak to your friend? Now talk to God. Talk about real experiences, real thoughts, real feelings. Share with him your ideas, your disappointments, your wants, your worries. Just talk. Let me give you some biblical examples of this. Go to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1. starting with verse 10. Now, if you know the story behind these verses, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, it makes sense, of course, this is 1 Samuel, and this is the very opening chapter of the first book of Samuel. This is where Samuel comes from. Okay? This is the story of Samuel's mother, Hannah, before there was a Samuel on the scene. Okay? 1 Samuel chapter 1.
Hannah and Elkanah were married, yet there was this time that oh, she was going through a crisis in her life. She was barren. She was unable to have children. And it was a spiritual conflict. It was causing a, quite a bunch of tension in her home and her personal life. Her, her psyche was just messed up with this. And she brings it to the Lord. And I want you to see how. Well, let's start with verse 9, let's say. First Samuel chapter 1 and verse 9. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. So it sets up the scene, verse 10. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Notice it, it was a feelings prayer. She was actually going to talk to God. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. She's basically said, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him back. I'll make a deal with you, Lord. I mean, she's talking real language, getting very practical. She wants a a child. She wants to be a boy. I will not put a razor on his head and I'll give him back to you. And she's doing it with weeping. She's anguish here. Now, verse 12. As it happened, and it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. That's a weird, bit of a weird construction, right? But why, what was he seeing there? Verse 13. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved. <laughs> so inside she was having this dialogue and she was kind of speaking out loud but wasn't making sounds, but her lips were moving So much so that Eli thought she was drunk. Watch this. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So he said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, said, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. She's like, no, 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 I'm not drunk. I'm just talking to God. And I love Eli's answer. Then Eli said, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. It's a beautiful thought. She's like, I just came to this place to just pour out my soul to God. In fact, strike a deal with him if he's open to it. Daniel chapter 9, a more familiar prayer. But notice the similarities. Daniel's anguish of heart this time is that he's living, we're going to start Daniel chapter 9, he's living at the time when according to the words of prophecy, the release or the captivity of, uh, of Israel should be over and they should be allowed to return to Jerusalem. Seventy years are coming to a close, and he's looking around, and he sees the condition of himself and his people. He says, basically, we're not a people who can be let go, and I'm afraid that the Lord's not going to honor his request because we've fallen down. And what does it say happened in verse 3? Then I set my face towards the Lord God, my God, uh, the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. And you would imply that we're the people who love you and keep his commandments, right? Then he says, we have sinned and committed iniquity. Notice the 
the framework, he says, Lord, we know that you are merciful and loving and kind, and you keep your covenant with anyone who obeys you, but we have transgressed. The implication is, now I fear that you're going to be unfaithful to us in the same way that we have been unfaithful to you. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Then notice how specific he gets, verse 6. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those afar off, and all countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. If we were to go on with this chapter, uh, with this prayer, over and over, he talks about how good and faithful God is and how messed up we have been. Not one time does he say, yeah, but we did do this right to you. Oh, no, no, no. The whole thing is a confession and sincerity in sackcloth and ashes. He's being genuine. He's being real with the Lord. Now skip down to verse 20. What is the Lord's response to this prayer? Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. And of course, he was working on a perplexing mystery. What are these prophecies all about? How does it relate? And he says, I have come to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. When did God send Gabriel with this answer? At the beginning of his supplication. It's not when he'd heard enough words or seen enough contrition or heard enough whatever special phrases or whatever. As soon as he opened his mouth in sincerity to God, God's like, go answer. Why? Because you're greatly... But had he sinned? Yeah. That's the whole tenor of the prayer. I have sinned. We have sinned. We have fallen short of your glory once again. And God said, good on you. Thanks for at least talking to me about it. And as soon as that supplication began, the answer was sent, because you're greatly loved. Steps of Christ 100, we read, Keep your wants, your joys, your sorrows, your cares, and your fears before God. You cannot burden Him. You cannot weary Him. Now, this is a powerful thought. The Bible says our God does not sleep, He doesn't slumber, He never grows tired, He never gets weary. That is good. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you have had to confide in a friend or or going through a really deep sorrow in your life or you've had someone else confiding in you and there's a certain amount of empathy you can take, but you just get tired. And you say, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to do, man. Pray about it. (laughs) Good luck. I, I don't know. But the Lord doesn't tire out. He doesn't grow weary. He invites you to keep coming however long it takes. She goes on. His heart of love is touched by our sorrows and even by our utterances of them. Take to him everything that perplexes the mind. Nothing is too great for him to bear, for he holds up worlds. He rules over all the affairs of the universe. Nothing that in any way concerns our peace is too small for him to notice. 
I don't know if you ever have this. Well, I mean, this is not really a big prayer item. It's just a little thing. Talk to him. If it's annoyance, if it's a frustration, if it's a disappointment, whatever it is, talk to him. There is no chapter in our experience too dark for him to read. I don't know if you've ever had this opportunity, but you, you'll say things like, Lord, forgive my sin, but you don't ever actually say what the sin is because even you don't want to say it. Do you think he doesn't know? But it does us good to give that over to him. Say it. Even if it makes you feel awful, it'll be better on the other side. There's no chapter in our experience too dark for him to read. There's no perplexity too difficult for him to unravel. No calamity can befall the least of his children. No anxiety harass the soul. No joy cheer. No sincere prayer escape the lips of which our Heavenly Father is unobservant or in which he takes no immediate interest. The moment you start saying it, he wants to hear it. I love this this sentence right here. Please listen carefully. The relations between God and each soul are as distinct and full as though there were not another soul upon the earth to share his watch care, not another soul for whom he gave his beloved son. Your relationship with God is special to God because it's you. And you're the only you God has. Do you think about that? I love this illustration. It's so true. God could create something that looks like you and talks like you and could fool even your friends and family, but it wouldn't be you. Because each of us has a a free moral agency, the right to choose, the right to think, the right to act as we see fit. And he doesn't want something that looks like you and sounds like you. He wants you. And you're the only you that there is. And his relationship with you, though he might talk to 10 million other people that day, it would still be less of a day for him because he didn't get a chance to talk to you. You are unique. You are a a special thing in his eye that no one else can take the place of. I'll say it again. The relations between God and each soul are as distinct and full as though there were not another soul upon the earth to share his watch care. I would imagine that Christ felt that way about his father. And as the disciples came upon him in prayer, they recognized a a sincerity an intimacy, a directness that though they had prayed all their lives, they didn't have that. And so they said, Lord, teach us to pray. So let me give you some six six little practical applications, tips that could improve from a biblical spirit point. These are things we find in Scripture that could improve and get you towards that prayer life. Number one, Think about time and place. Pray in a solitary place every morning or every evening. Set your time apart and pray in a solitary place. Jesus not only taught the importance of alone time with God, he lived it. Remember what it said, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place and there he prayed. 
It's hard to pray when the microwave's going off, the TV's going, and this and the kids in it. It's a little bit hard to have that real direct communication when nine other things are vying for your attention. Christ knew it's like, if I'm going to make this, I'm going to make it a time, and I'm going to get up before everybody else. I'm going to go to a place, and that's my time and place. It is the best to pray before the day begins and in a place where you can be alone and without distraction. We should do this every day. In that marvelous little book appropriately titled Prayer, page 12, Mrs. White writes, Neglect the exercise of prayer or engage in prayer spasmodically. It's a great word. (laughs) Now and then, just every now and then, occasionally on the off chance, as it seems convenient, and you lose your hold on God. You lose that daily connection. Number two, as we saw in Hannah, and I would imagine in Daniel as well, probably Christ as well. In fact, specifically Christ. Pray out loud. There aren't a lot of times that I come to my wife and I just look at her and we just kind of nod and shake and twitch. At some point, she's going to be like, do you have something to say? (laughs) Now, of course, the Lord can hear your thoughts. You know, but saying what you mean to say has a power to it. From Christ's object lesson, speaking about the time when in Luke 11, the disciples happened upon Christ's prayer life is we find these words. Christ's disciples found him absorbed in supplication. Seeming unconscious of their presence, he continued praying aloud. So notice that if you look back at the test, they had to wait till he stopped. If he was praying quietly, how would they know when that had come? But they were listening. And they heard some sort, I wish they'd have written it down. (laughs) But they're like, man, now that is prayer. You You guys just talk? Teach us. Pray out loud, even if just a whisper, or even like Hannah. Just let the lips move, you know, just try it. Strengthens your face, helps prevent the mind from wandering during prayer, which can happen. Number three, pray earnestly. Remember Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane? How did he pray? The bigger the conflict that was coming, the deeper the intensity of the prayer. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. It's not to say that everyone, every other one was trite and superficial, but that last one was a real prayer. No, no, no. This one just took it to a deeper level. We cannot assume that the Lord will answer casual or mechanical prayers. Again, in the book of prayer, page 75, we're admonished, our languaged, half-hearted prayers will not bring us returns from heaven. Oh, we need to press our petitions. Be earnest in the matter. Yet we do have the assurance from James chapter 2, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Be sincere with feeling. Number four, pray for others. You look at Christ's prayer to his father. At the end of his life, John chapter 17, he starts with his own relationship with God, but it's the shortest part of the prayer. Then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for those who are going to come to God through his disciples who Jesus would never even personally meet. The bulk of his prayer is praying for others. We should do this in our prayer life. We should make a list of those people, our friends, our families, our co-workers, our neighbors, our extended family, our church family members, those we those you want to intercede for, ask the Lord to be with them. Take time to pray. Again, Leslie talked about time. Sometimes, if you make it, not just sometimes, every time, you make a commitment to the Lord in time or in finances or anything else, Satan will, I promise you, come in and try to horn in on that particular thing that you've set apart. If you say, Lord, I'm going to be eating like this, all of a sudden, 
options become available, that where was that last week? If you say, Lord, I'm going to spend this amount of time with you this day, all of a sudden your schedule's going to get full on that point. I guarantee it. Make it the highest priority. Keep that time apart. Keep that time apart for him. And here, number six, intensely practical. Just like physical exercise, prayer exercise is the same way. Do it even when you don't feel like it. Not much more to say about that one. Mm. Jesus taught that, quote, this is from Luke 18, 1, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Sometimes it may not feel like the Lord is answering. Pray anyway. You're building character, and just like muscle, it takes time. It takes time to build that relationship. Mm. Every true relationship requires time and communication. So here's my challenge at this message. Try to preach with a particular concrete challenge. For the remainder of this entire year, all three weeks of it, devote at least 15 minutes of every day to personal, private, earnest prayer. Speak to the Lord about your daily experiences, your thoughts and your feelings, your confusions, your frustrations, your worries, and your victories, good things, bad things, and all points in between. Talk to the Lord. Pray for your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, your classmates, your church family members, and on and on and on. Pray especially for those who are in physical pain or emotional distress or spiritual despair. And you will realize that there truly is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. He's revealed his love to you in so many ways, and all he's asking for in return is communication, direct, sincere, and earnest with you in a constant way. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.